0: Hello again, welcome to episode 11 of the Voices from SA podcast. My name is Nicholas Claude. Thank you for joining me. My guest this week is Dr. Lulu Guagua. She has a PhD in town planning from University College London. She's worked as a deputy director general for the Department of Public Works and the Mandela and Mbeki governments. is currently CEO of Lareco Investments while also studying a master's in philosophy. We covered a lot of ground in this discussion um, even though planning, urban and rural planning, was sort of the focus, um, he had a lot of issues around land and development arise. We spoke about her childhood in the Transkei, being the first ever black town planning student at the University of Natal and Durban. Her years in government, and then also as the CEO of the Independent Development Trust. We spoke about the role of business and growth and um, the inspiration she gets from mentoring young black professional women. We also discussed the importance of rural development and the difficulties of breaking down the geographical legacies of apartheid. Please now enjoy my chat with Lulu Gobba. So, Lulu, Guagua, gua, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Um, I want to, I suppose, start from the beginning and just get a sense of um, your upbringing, uh, where you grew up, the, home, the, the household that you grew up, if we could just start there.
1: Um, thanks very much for the opportunity. I am um, from a village called Kromhook. Um, sounds Afrikaans, um I guess it's because of the history of the area, which is the East Griqualand area. Um, so we pronounce it Krumok. It's a small village, um, rural village in Umzimkulu, uh, which is the border of uh, KZN and the Eastern Cape. So we started off in the Eastern Cape, and then somewhere down the line, I think um, local government elections, I can't remember, probably 2004, somewhere around there, Then we became KZN. So when you ask me where I'm from, within the context of (laughs) post-94, I kind of say, okay, I grew up in the Eastern Cape, but actually I'm from KZN. And so it's that kind of thing. So at the moment, I will say I'm from KZN. um, But when I was growing up, I was in the Eastern Cape, so I've got more affinity to Eastern Cape. As I said earlier on, we also, my whole family, we went to schools also. Mm. We were sent to the Eastern Cape Mm. because my father... So Eastern Cape with uh, better education, and it is factual
0: mm-hmm. that
1: at the time, uh, pre ninety four Eastern Cape Eastern Cape, wa- Eastern Cape education was a lot stronger. Uh, kids came as far as as as, as Joburg. Mm. And, and Cape Town to come to schools in the, the, the Transkei at the time.
0: In the Transkei, right. At the time, so, yes. so your parents then, tell me a little bit about your family. Your, you, you, you have.
1: Um, I grew up, um, I have got five siblings. I'm the eldest of, of five siblings. But really, I grew up in a bigger family. That's my nuclear family. But I grew up in a, an extended family mm-hmm. because my father had two other brothers. So the three brothers really anchored the family. And they lived so quite close to each we other. We lived quite close to each other. So I grew up, so I consider myself to, have, uh, to be a one of the 13 siblings. And that's how I define myself, mm. because of that extended family that I grew up in. But also, when we grew up, we were actually 25 children at home. Wow. Because uh, my elder uncle and my father were teachers, and my younger uncle was a policeman, so um, the two teachers really uh, kind of attracted children from other families who either didn't have the means to take their children to school or they actually identified talent in those children, not necessarily from our village, only from the villages where they taught. Then they right. would bring them to stay at home so that they can be molded towards education. So, uh, so your take, house
0: was a house of learning...
1: Of learning and um, and and big family, uh, and almost, many children. It
0: became like a sort of like a boarding house almost.
1: I, I would say so. I mean, I when I grew up, we we were grouped. I was in a group of five, my age group. So we ate together, you slept together, you did all of this. Mm. All. and then when there were chores, you did that as that particular age group. Oh, so, I see, okay.
0: Yeah. So the yeah. you were you were given the. Task to fetch water or wood, depending yeah, on your depending age. Depending
1: on your age, in terms of this is what you do, this is what you do.
0: Did boys help with that stuff as well?
1: The boys were doing uh, boy stuff, as in looking after cattle, <laughs> okay. as in doing all of that stuff. So they were I mean, quite traditional in mm, that sense, mm. very, in terms of roles and responsibilities. Right. They're very clear what were, ch- what were girls' uh, roles and what were boys' roles. Very, very, de- well, very, very defined. There was no crossover. Mm. The boys so weren't washing dishes.
0: Let's just go back a little. you you growing up in a house that's full of, of, of learning or at least puts a lot of value on education. What were your parents' aspirations for you or what, did you, what were your aspirations when you were growing up in terms of your further education? Was there a path sort of laid out for you or did your parents kind of uh, you know, give you the opportunity to, to, to free, free yourself
1: I think it's it's both in the sense that um, the first thing is that when I grew up in those years, remember that we were deep in apartheid, mm. so for blacks career wise, there were limited things that you could do and you could get into and in terms of university, it was also about those careers that were offered, courses were offered in the historically black universities mm. Um, so when I grew up, I was kind of—I um, uh, understood that I was um, relatively intelligent, and therefore, within that context at the time, that meant you were going to go to medicine. How, that, old, that's how,
0: how, how Sorry, how old were you when you um, matriculated? I
1: was. I mean, what, what year? What, what year did you matriculate? That was 1975.
0: Okay, so that's yeah, you know, that's yeah. That was really.
1: That was deep. We were deep mm, in it mm, at the time. Mm. So there were clearly black universities, white universities, Indian university, coloured university. That that, that was Fort very Hare yeah apartheid. And and you know, uh, yeah, ngoye and then you had UDW for an Indian population. Mm. You had University of De- of Western Cape. Yeah, that was for uh,
0: um, so called coloured. Col- yeah. So we have a situation where, you know, as you said, deep apartheid. Um, restricted opportunities, there was, I think, you know, a lot of, as you say, your 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 dad and your uncles were teachers or mm. policemen, the, mm. the wives were nurses yes. uh, or teachers, yeah. and that was that kind was of, that it. was about as far yeah. as the sort of aspirational black beast. middle class, or <laughs> <laughs> as far as the black middle class yes. family could aspire to, yeah. and then of course medicine yes. for yeah, for a few. few. Mm. So, but you, you, you yeah, you so I
1: wanted to, to be a, a medical doctor. Partly when I grew up, my mother was fairly sickly, so I would go see my mother in hospital or whatever, and then I would actually see these doctors with these white coats. And uh, the thing that stands out we, was the, loud, the, the intercom. We called it loudspeaker. So it will be Dr. So-and-so, Dr. So-and-so whatever. And I kind of imagined <laughs> Dr. Guagua, doctor. I thought this is it. <laughs> uh, but sadly for me, it was not uh, to be, because when I was doing um, Form four, which would have been grade 11. Uh, we didn't have a maths teacher. Um, so we started um, in, in the beginning of the year, I was at boarding school, come Easter. And I'm home, and my father is finding out what's going on. And I'm saying, we still don't have a maths teacher. And then um, he said, okay, you, when you go back, I need to find out if you, you have a maths teacher or you don't. So we go back. Two weeks later, he arrives. Do you have a maths teacher? No. And he said, okay, so now you're moving from the maths class to the geography class. Hmm. Because you don't have a teacher. So it's not going to happen.
0: And I mean... You hear these stories even today, you know, yeah. of, of schools without yeah. without that. And we'll, we, we'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about sort of the yeah. STEM education as well. Mm. Um, or, or maybe not without math teachers, but certainly without science laboratories. Yeah. So you have kids matriculating mm. in science in, in chemistry that have never, never seen a test. Have never seen a Bunsen burner.
1: Ex- absolutely.
0: And that's today. Yeah. So you can't even it imagine then, what it then, was like Exactly. 30, we, 40. I mean,
1: obviously, we didn't have a lab, we didn't have a library. But I'll come back to that. So, so you that kind, of, was the end. kind of you were
0: forced mm. to develop a fascination for geography, or just as well which, you did
1: exactly. So I so that that that's how I ended up not at medical school. By the way, until the end of that year, there was no maths teacher. The whole year. The whole year there was no maths teacher. By the way, so I ended up in geography and I ended up matriculating in geography, and therefore instead of going to University of Natal Medical School, which was the black section, I ended yes. up at Forte. So I had not worked out because now I'd done geography and I'd done well. So now I ended up doing geography and English as my majors. I had no clue where (laughs) now I was going. And clearly I was going to go the teacher route. I mean, in terms of the subjects. But I had always said to myself, I'm not going to be a teacher. Please, God, can I be something else?
0: And Fort Hare must have been quite a popping environment there as well, sort of a political hotbed, wasn't it? I mean, it always Remember has I been. Remember, I arrived at
1: Fort 1976 yeah. to do my first year. So first year we didn't write. Hmm. Uh, end of the year because of obvious 76, we didn't write. We wrote our final examinations in January. So when I see Fees Must four, and the students writing in January, I kind of, care. Okay, we've been there. So we wrote in in, in January actually 77. Hmm. 476 and then we started the academic year and obviously mid year Steve Beagle happens
0: that's it and
1: again so forte was that Kicking kind of thing Kicking off the whole time was you you were in and out of class you were uh, chased home and and all of that but um we we did that and I finished and so when I was about to finish my third year uh, geography and english and I I was doing fairly well in geography so came Peter Robinson from the University of Natal, they were now recruiting for town planning. So what is town planning? I had no clue. I'd never heard the word in my entire life. I was mm-hmm. doing final year geography. And so they're focusing on geography students, so you're going to do aptitude tests and whatever. Long and short, I got selected with a bursary to go and do town planning University of Natal. I tell my father, town planning, what is it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> my father know town planning? No. So well, why did I go to University of Natal? I think the only reason why I went there, there were two. One, it was saving me from going to do geography honours and therefore teaching. The second one was the fascination of the possibility of going to a white university. Mm. So because town planning was only offered yes. in At. white universities. Mm. So. Again, as you say, you can't believe w- what we've been through. So I had to apply to the Minister of Education
0: for National. special permission.
1: Special permission, you remember that, to actually go to the University of Natal. But because our, I had the, the bursary and the university actually is the one that had invited me to come, so it kind of made it yeah. easier. Mm. So long and short, I ended up at the University but of still, Natal. Still, I mean,
0: just worth bearing in mind that process that existed, of course. And then, were you? I mean, you must have been one of how many black kids on campus, anyway?
1: We were hardly thirty
0: in the whole in university the
1: whole campus. Out of if thousands, you, if you exclude the medical school, which was on mm. the, not on the same yes, campus, King Edward, yeah, yeah. But it, for example, in town planning, I was the only, and I was the first black student in town planning, and the only one at the time.
0: And this is now, what, 79 or something?
1: That was 79. I mean, if you think about it, that was Mm. just the first black student in that department at the time. And remember also, we couldn't stay on campus. We had to stay with the medical students in the township because there was a special residence for medical students because they were black. It's Alan Taylor residence. And the boundary was the the oil refinery. Yes. So we were right. There. Our next door was the oil breathing refinery. We were breathing lovely that day air. in, day day in, day out. Mm. So that's where that's where we were. So that was my that was my um my town planning.
0: Were you quite politicized as a as a student? Were you involved in student politics during those days? Interesting. Or was that something you just kind of had to get swept up in
1: you, I don't think, if you were a student at the time, black student, and you were at university in 76, did you have a choice? No. Mm. Because whether you were political or not, you were still going to be beaten up anyway by the police, because you're going to have a, a mass meeting, which you cannot go to. And when the police arrive, they're beating up everybody. I mean, we did. We had that in 76, just about the whole year. Same with 77 at '40. So... Although I wasn't in the student leadership at, at that, but being political just be, by being there. Just being there. And mm. I think when you when I got to the University of Natal at medical school, I mean yes. that was the that was the breeding ground.
0: That was a very a known... that, that
1: was yeah. a, were very well known. I mean if you think about it now, a lot of the Steve Bigo himself was came from from that university in Kosa Zanazuma, was there, Zwelim <laughs> Kize. Um, so a lady. I mean you can count that way at university. it came from that university or G. So very, very political Dilizamji. Yeah, Jeez. They all came from that came from that environment, uh, Joe hmm. So a very, very, uh, very, very political um, environment um, hmm. uh, that. And you simply just didn't have a choice. You couldn't avoid it.
0: You were obviously quite a gifted student because you did end up going to study your um, your do your PhD at the University College of London. So you somehow developed uh, a love for this thing that you did not know. Got
1: by default too. <laughs> yeah, I think I mean that's why sometimes I mean I'm now studying philosophy and I I, I these things of is their destiny or not? You know that thing is your is your future predetermined or mm. not? And what mm. role do you play in defining that future for yourself? Because I, I got into town planning by sheer coincidence, sheer. Yeah. Yeah. I went into the first class. I didn't know what I was going to study. I didn't know what I was going to be taught in class. But I ended up uh, being a planner. And, I mean, I, I'm so glad I never ended up at medical school.
0: What was the sort of... What, what, what then... What, what caused you to develop that? What, what was the eventual fascination, I, do you I think?
1: think? I think it's, it's where I come from. So, remember, planning is about allocation of resources. And I come from a rural area, deep rural area. My family, as I said, wasn't necessarily poor, but I, I grew up in poverty in my environment, and also poverty of infrastructure, where I was. So that whole issue of spatial planning, which I didn't think about at the time, has become very critical in my in my shape, in my mind. So town planning is about development. And if you stay in rural area, that, that is the, it epitomizes development or underdevelopment. So you don't learn it, you live it. And so I've come to, um, I, I can just see what it does. I mean, mm. I grew up in Krumok. I now stay in Waterclough And I just know the difference.
0: Two different worlds. The,
1: the two different worlds. And, and, and both in terms of lived experience, but also now with my planning background. And I know what is that different, what has made that difference between the two.
0: And I suppose that is one of the legacies of apartheid and we can we can we can discuss that a little more um i was going to um just sort of comment um also on that whole th- that 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 phraseology t- uh t- urban and town planning it it sort of it doesn't take in the rural, rural uh mm. component but mm. that is very much mm. part of it because mm. it's planning for the whole country yeah um and it's it's trying to as you say, get a balance of infrastructure and resources between urban and rural areas mm-hmm. um i just want to then jump you worked uh, on the on the provincial boundaries um, and that was um Ninety- at a sort of Ninety-
1: three mm-hmm. at a
0: government at a government level mm-hmm. uh, you were is it deputy d-
1: deputy d g deputy director general
0: um within mm-hmm. um
1: Public Works Department.
0: And so, what were? And this is now ninety, sorry,
1: ninety-five to ninety-eight.
0: And so, you really are at the sort of formative phase of a post-apartheid um, planning, and this is real planning, planning mm. um, that has to do with the the shape of the society. I suppose mm. you want to create in a mm. post-apartheid South Africa. What for you were then your main sort of reflections of the gravity of the the challenge, and, or what were the and, and what were indeed within that context the main sort of challenges or focus areas or main areas that you thought you could change if that's not saying too many things in, in yeah.
1: I think that um, when I was in the um, Commission for the delineation and demarcation of of provincial boundaries, I think that's where, for me the issue of spatial planning, I came in um, really, really uh, confronted in a very real way, spatial planning. And I'll, I'll tell you why, because the commission, I think there were 12 commissioners. And each political party of the bigger political parties had to nominate um, somebody into the commission. So I I was nominated from the ANC side um, to be in in the commission. I think there were um, a number of us from the ANC as well, including Bax Nomwete, who was the chair of the the commission, and then there were other people in the commission. But just the, the debates around that around the boundaries themselves. Because remember, boundary is not the physical line. It's about allocation of resources. That's, that's what a boundary is about, if you, if you really think about it from a planning point of view. Although the boundaries are like, like, you can say, depending on where you come from, you can say the political boundaries or the administrative boundaries, but actually in the end, it's, it's about allocation of resources. Because we had hearings coming from different groups. For example, here in Gauteng, the, I can't even remember what the party was called, but really the AWB of the time. They came and they made a presentation to us as a commission. Their idea, their proposal was about carving out Pretoria, the town, and having bridges that fly over to Brits. You, you will think now I'm joking, but actually it's very real.
0: Little pockets, Little pockets of
1: African. Little pockets of because Afri- Pretoria was the beginning and end of Africanhood in that presentation, and then you flew over to Brits and all these other farming areas, and that's how they viewed it. Then that was supposed to be a province of its own. You know. So those are the kinds of issues that, that you, 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 had, you, you had to deal with in that commission. So, so, so for me, um, when I think about it now... I think the issue of land as a resource, already in that discussion, it wasn't put as central in the CODESA discussion. Hmm. And I think part of it was because there were so many other issues that were, so some of the, I would say, inverted commerce, very contentious, contentious issues. Somehow we, we avoid it, I think.
0: That's unbelievable in a way. What because, was more contentious than land then?
1: But if you think about it, I mean, in those negotiations, land as land, I don't, were there any real discussions around land and land redistribution or distribution? In Cordessa, I, I, I don't. I'm mm. sure it was there, but it wasn't as central.
0: So the central discussion devices. was around the sort of political landscape, the constitution, yeah. um, the actual sort of administrative yes. of a new democracy, mm. as opposed to mm. the actual physical mm. realigning.
1: Yeah. And so um, I think that, I mean, I always say to people, um, for me, there are three crucial issues that apartheid got right and sadly 2018 all three we haven't gotten them right yet and part of the reason why we haven't got them right yet is because apartheid got them so right the first one is spatial planning because by its very nature it is very physical and therefore to move it it's very difficult. The fact of the matter is that Bochabelo is there. The township. The township in the middle of nowhere. But it's very physical. It's there. And there's people that are staying there. So you, you can't wake up tomorrow and say, OK, we're getting rid of Bochabelo. And then we're moving everybody. People are there, they've got graves, they've got all kinds of things. So although they know they shouldn't be and they don't want to be there, but actually they're stuck, they're there, if you see what I mean. Mm. So it's the same when you look at, say, A. Joburg. I mean, you asked earlier on, what are we going to, what, what are we doing to dismantle the apartheid city? It's very difficult mm. because a city is physical. Soweto is physically there. Sentin is physically here. So you're not, you're not playing monopoly where, or, or where a puzzle or you, where you're just going to jiggle and say, now we want everybody to, to be close to working opportuni- to opportunities of work. So let's wake up today because Soweto people are poor, sentin they're rich. Let's move sentin to where Soweto is. Let's talk Soweto and put it in sentin. Theoretically, that's what you would like to see. But in reality, because it is so physical, it's very difficult to do. So what you end up doing is that you end up tempering with the, with the, with the spatial framework of apartheid. And the spatial framework of apartheid is very real and is here. If you look at what we've done post-94, uh, particularly on the residential side, Also because of the land issue that we talked talked about earlier on in private land ownership. We've gone and built these RDP houses further and further. Why? Because that's where land is available. available.
0: Because I've often wondered about that. Why was there not an opportunity taken when you're building these things to build it closer to the city?
1: Because if you were going to, you needed to take the uh, Hyde Park golf course. If there's anything like that because that's the land that's available for you to be able to do that you'll have to take the golf course or you'll have to take the park down the road here and in in, in Santin. that's the land that's available and other pieces of land are in private hands but did we deal with those issues that's the issue i'm 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 saying we didn't deal with those issues so it's 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 only now with that we're starting to say land expropriation, and people are saying it is in the Constitution, yes, but wh- where are the instruments? And over and above the instrument is also the political instrument to deal with that.
0: You said there were three things that are politics. So I'm
1: saying it's the spatial framework, so that 1913 Land Act, mm. and then you added the Group Areas Act on top of that, so you kind of layered and layered and really entrenched the spatial framework. So that's the first thing. The second thing that they got so right is education. And remember, these things are related. So education, I mean, that's right what we talked about. Right in the sense of
0: making some people not get an education.
1: Don't get education, li- therefore limited opportunities. But also where you are, there, there aren't good schools. Even when you've got teachers, they don't want to be teaching in krumuk. So it's kind of related, you know. So Again, the issue of education is, uh, is a big one. But the key issue about apartheid for me, uh, which I, 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 people get un, uneasy when I say it, but I actually think it's real, having worked in government with implementation and struggled with it. The thing that we could learn from apartheid is how to implement your policies effectively. And also know how to, what to start with and how to embed so that it's irreversible. Because if you think about it, that spatial apartheid policy is it's difficult to reverse. That's what we've been trying to do the last 24 years. It's almost impossible, it's difficult. Same with the issue of education. Of course, there's a lot that we could have done. But my generation now, we where we are, you're not going to change the fact that I had limited opportunities. I, I went to school in Krumok. You, you can't reverse that. The fact that the children today, they started grade A in Bochabelo still, and the only children that started grade 1 in Bochabelo are black, is still happening today. Mm. So that's what I mean that the, effective, the, the, the implementation is what has eluded us here. And I think we could, we could learn a bit from the tactics and the strategy and tactics of implementation from apartheid.
0: Hmm.
1: Sobering, but it's real.
0: Yeah, I'm just processing that. Obviously, I mean, they, not, layered, talking, they layered that. You're obviously that not talking uh, about apartheid with any admiration. You're just no, saying no, 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 like that's, why, that's why I'm just saying... Just implementation of a plan, get a plan and do it.
1: And be, conviction, but obviously, uh, yeah, yeah, the third area there was about then having the whole state apparatus over it, like to hover on it like 24-7 and take no prisoners.
0: And geared only towards 5% of the population. Only
1: that. And they, they did that with all the might of the state. And the state was very clear. And in, in different elements, I mean, the alignment between national government and the provinces at the time, and the municipalities at the time, was like spot on. The universities, the CSIRs, and the HSRCs of the time, was completely aligned. So, to I mean, state, that's a
0: state project.
1: A state project to implement and get that right and entrench it as deeply as possible. So, you absolutely right. That's why I'm saying sometimes when I say this, people get unsettled because. I sound as if I'm saying apartheid was. I'm saying I envy their implementation effectiveness of doing the wrong thing.
0: Well, I suppose that's the power of a military dictatorship in a way, and a democracy is yeah. a different um, a challenge.
1: Different, it, absolutely. Because now you have to consult, you have to, At the time, that's why I'm saying they layered that with the mighty of the state that consulted nobody.
0: So how do we you mentioned you use the term spatial equity and I just wanted to we've kind of touched on it, but maybe mm-hmm. you could just sort of give me a definition of what you mean by spatial equity and how do we achieve then spatial equity given these massive challenges because it's something I think about as well. It's like, you know, you have um most people in this country are spending what a third of their salaries on transport, transport. Mm. going from this side to that side, mm, even more um, in some
1: instances. Yeah, I
0: mean, I'm just, yeah. I'm, I'm thumb-sucking now, mm. um, but distance from work and convenience of of um, of dwelling mm. is is still a challenge, and I, I suppose that's an aspect of the spatial equity you're talking mm. about. But maybe you could just sort of expand mm. a bit on that.
1: To be quite honest, I mean, I, 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 don't, I, I don't have um, bullet um, suggestions on how to achieve spatial equity. Spatial equity for me means that it must be a child, a girl child who's born in Kromuk, must have the same life chances as a girl child born in Waterloo. Because at the moment, your life chances are completely different. So where you're born spatially, obviously, over and above that is also the family that you're born into, obviously, the because of class. And... and so at the moment in South Africa, obviously, class and race, they're very closely aligned. So if you are born in Krumok, you are likely to be black and you are likely to be poor, if you are born in in, in that. And your life chances and the reason why your life chances are much much lower is because the school that you have access to the clinic that you have got access to and 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 everything the exposure that you have you know about what's possible in life you don't have you don't have exposure to DSTV either because there's no network or because you can't afford it so it's a combination of all of those things. So spatial inequality, I think, is the biggest issue for me mm. in South Africa. But as 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 you correctly said earlier on, it is obviously um, closely aligned with the race and class as well. I think when we were in government at the time with the rural development programs, that's part of what we're trying to address I mean I'm starting on, on the rural side was to say what what, what what is it that you do in those rural areas and part of it also which was um, is, is complex in that discussion is that by developing rural areas you are not saying that you want to cab because you can't by the way to cab uh, mobility and urbanization, because urbanization is a process that you can't. But what you do, no matter what resources, no matter you, put what resources you put in a rural area, yes. Um, so, but it is about saying if you are in rural areas, it gives you that chance and that those those opportunities and those choices to either stay or move. But if you move, you, your mobility um, is a lot more, uh, what's the right English word I'm looking for? Uh, let me use effective for now. Because if you are uneducated, yeah, yeah. If you are uneducated and you don't have exposure and you don't, you've not had access, when you get to Gauteng, you're going to end up in deep slot. That's the difference. But when my child
0: moves... Deep Slut the squatter community. The the
1: squatter community. But when my child moves from Kromok, they are likely to move into an apartment in Parktown. And why? Because they're educated, so they're going to find a job at the bank or wherever else. So they're going to be able to afford, like any other normal child anyway, that you rent yourself a bachelor flat. Because you're earning five thousand rand or seven thousand rand or whatever it is, or your startup job. But if you went to school in Krumuk and therefore you, and you haven't had any of those chances, it means you're moving here. You're unemployed. You're gonna end up working in somebody's kitchen, or you're gonna end up um, doing whatever menial job or unemployed. So you're gonna end up in, in squatter settlements. So I think this issue of rural development is crucial. Hmm. I think it it is crucial. The issue of land which obviously we're struggling as a country to deal with both in terms of rural but also in terms of the, of urban urban land. I think most instances when we talk about land people think about the tracts of land in rural areas the farm and therefore the... land equals agriculture but actually urban land is a crucial issue as well. In terms of how do we deal with uh, with urban land, because then to be able to densify the cities mm. and when you densify who who has access becomes a crucial issue. I was listening to the mayor uh, of Jobek um yesterday talking about the buildings in the central city and and so who's who owns those city i mean those buildings they've sort of uh, been
0: abandoned and uh, taken abandoned. over
1: so if the city takes over those buildings, what do they do with them? And, and and if there's going to be gentrification, therefore, who's displaced? And so how do you make sure that whatever opportunities you have as the municipality, you are able to open the city to, to the poor? I think it's a, it's a big issue. And by the way, mm. um, remember that this issue... Is not just a South African issue. What makes it complex in South Africa, I suppose, is because it's political and racial.
0: Yeah. If you go to London... Well, it's that legacy we're talking about. It's that about. legacy.
1: Because if you go to New York, who's staying now in the, cent- in the center of New York? Mm. The wealthy. The wealthy have come back. So that's mm. something that kind of happens with the evolution of cities. But here, we've got a history to deal with before you kind of come to the normal... Evolution of cities, which in in the South African context we don't have that because it was politically driven. Mm. So it's a very, very it's a very, very difficult um, it's a very difficult and complex uh, complex issue.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, we could talk, uh, I suppose, for yeah. for days. Um, but it's 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 certainly something now that everyone is 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 suddenly grappling with. It's I suppose it's going to be fascinating to see, and particularly as you say. The, the 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 issue of urban land as opposed to just the rural, rural, you know, mm. it's it's not about that. Mm. Mm. Um, I just wanted to maybe move us along um, and 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 get a sense of your tra- transition uh, into the private sector because you now do, you you are um, is it do I call you CEO of mm. uh, of Lireco Investment. Investments? Mm. Um, you spent a number of years in, in government and in sort of parastatal yeah. types. Uh, mm. Was it the IDT?
1: IDT as a CEO is a public entity.
0: Mm. Right. Um, did you kind of get frustrated with government that, that provoked your move to the private sector or um, was it just something you wanted to do for your, to achieve your own ambitions?
1: Um, no, I didn't get frustrated. I was bent out.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I think that a lot of us who got into government in 94, it was both exciting, um, complex, huge learning curve, and the pace was like unbelievable. You literally were working 24-7, literally. Uh, Partly because you you had the political drive yourself, and we came from, was that, from euphoria? The that euphoria, but also in terms of what needed to be done. So we were like literally running. So I was in government for 10 years. And when I count the IDT as well, and you were dealing with huge um, issues in terms of change, in terms of legislation, in terms of policy. And I was literally bent out. I wasn't frustrated at all. Initially, I was going to go back to academia. That's what I thought I was going to do. And, um, and then I got sidetracked <laughs> by these guys at Lireko, invited me to consider the opportunity, and I ended up here. It's almost like my career, I've kind of ended up where I hadn't quite planned to be. Mm, and I again. kind of, find, again, so I found myself here. I hadn't actually not planned. And I, I never thought I would be in business, mm. not because I had an ideological issue, but I never thought because of coming from the development sector, I couldn't quite see myself in business, but I've ended up in business. But what I've come to realize in business is that business is just another platform
0: for development. Does business understand its role? Because I sometimes feel there's not enough kind of communication between business, government and labor actually. to sort of define a a direction.
1: Honestly, I think the the understanding it's not just business, it's across, it's all those stakeholders. Those critical stakeholders. I think the trust deficit it is just so huge. And again, it's historical. Because again, business is hist- like big business is historically white. And, and that is still government, the case today. it is still the case, and government, is now at senior level, is black. And labour, is black. So there's un- there's that underlying history, as well. I think from from all angles, um, to say. We should all be moving in the same direction, have the same end point. And that was the intention of the NDP, really, National Development Plan.
0: Exactly. It
1: was to define
0: I thought that's yeah. the,
1: the vision for South Africa, um, an inclusive, that's the whole inclusive growth issue, inclusive development, a South Africa that is a home for all. And all of us have got different roles to play. So some happen to be in government playing the same role of taking South Africa somewhere and some happen to be in business, some happen to be in labor. But for us to be able to achieve that, uh, we, we need to have the same end point in terms of where, what South Africa uh, do we wish for? And I think um, you're right to say sometimes there is that disconnect um, of what South Africa are we looking for and where we've got some alignment it's how to get there. Hmm. Um, also, sometimes it's not. there's no alignment in terms of how, how we should get there. I mean, business has got a, a crucial role to play. I, I'm on a board of a bank. Banks are at the center. They drive the economy.
0: Hmm. Some people say banks are not doing enough for... Especially sort of emerging black entrepreneurs are doing enough to sort of support the tr- transition in our an in our, in economic transition now purely I'm talking about. I'm not sure that if, if if there's a way for capital in this country to sort of rethink its
1: its role no, I'll be the first one to 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 agree with you on that. To say that at one level, yes, banks are custodians of other people's money. Because that's what a bank is. In itself, you are custodian of other people's money. So part of what you have to deal with is to make sure that those deposits are secure. So when you define your risk. But somewhere in between, you also have a role to actually make the optimal use of that capital that is is in your hand for the, uh, which is somebody else's capital, Hmm. if you see what I mean. But at the same time, part of the role of the bank, as you define that risk, is to make sure that you are not defining risk in a way that actually puts brakes on the economy. And therefore, when I'm not making capital available to people is because I've defined them as high risk. So what is the scorecard that I use to define that risk? Mm. And also, what more could I do to enhance the credit worthiness of that individual? Because I also have a role to play as a bank. I think for the banks to see themselves, which they do, but to actually actively take on that responsibility of being the engine of growth. And understanding that growth, not just the engine of growth, but the engine of inclusive growth. Mm -hmm. Because if you then define that as an inclusive growth, then you immediately saying, I recognize (laughs) that there was exclusion.
0: And I suppose that would go across the board then. I mean, you did do some work in the construction industry and uh, the transformation of the construction industry, and that also seems to be an industry that's struggling to sort of transform itself from its sort of white monopoly um, image or reality.
1: Again, it's because um, if you are in the construction industry, you need access to capital and so that that it's it's it it it's a huge barrier to entry i'm not talking about building two frdb houses here i'm talking about the, the industry the people that are going to build the fnb stadium for you to build the fnb stadium obviously i mean the capital that you require for you to even qualify to be that it's it's huge so again it takes us back to the issue of access to capital and also um one of the things when we were in public works that we were trying to do uh, we started what we call the emerging contractor development program which was about consciously making opportunities available to emerging contractors and from the department providing support to those contractors and as they are emerging, obviously you're not going to be and we set aside uh, unconstitutional in this country. So we had to get around that and say, how do we make sure that uh, contracts that were less than whatever the number was at the time, let's say 20 million, those contracts were available to a certain category of contractors. And, but you use those as part of building capacity and capability of those uh, contractors. But you can't just give a contract and not provide support. But for you to do that, you need the big contractors mm. to actually be part of the capacity building of these emerging contractors. And and and, and so those, co- those Has big... Has that
0: happened? Is that happening?
1: Not as much as it should have. Somebody needs to hold the hand of that emerging contractor, teach them how to coat and how to... Do all of the work that you need to the do. Whole supply chain, precisely. So you need um, the big construction industry guys to be committed to that program to actually partner you in building the capacity and the capability, and to basically build the the, the industry because patrofield is about building the, the the industry, and and that's where I think the point we were raising earlier on of saying is big business on board. I think I, I think that's where the, the, the challenge is.
0: You have a quote on your uh, homepage is from Maya Angelou. It says, "When you learn, teach. When you get, give." And maybe you could just put that in some sort of context for me uh, for the the kind of work that you are doing today.
1: Yeah. I remember, right from the beginning, I said I grew up in a family. That uh, we were thirteen siblings, but we ended up being twenty five and I think my whole um, philanthropic work comes from that because I grew up in that environment where my father w- used to say literal translation um, from from Tosa is like you throw at the at the at the at the, at the top of the river, and you'll receive at the end. It, it's going to flow through, and you'll you'll pick up at the end. It was basically saying you, you plow the seed, and 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 the dividend will come automatically. So I grew up in an environment where uh, we had, I mean, my father took a, a whole range. I can't count children that either stayed at home, or uh, he took through education, and who I saw being, and I thought. That's how life is supposed to be. And so I was kind of socialized in that way. And I think on top of that, my own now professional training of being a development worker kind of added to that, where I always see myself as having a responsibility of making it possible for others. And so, um, because I think that I'm where I am because of a whole range of people that have made it possible for me, over and above my parents. There's a whole range of people who've believed in me, who've made it possible for me. And I think I have been um, lucky and blessed to have had opportunities and exposure and access that is quite wide. And therefore I sit with a whole range of networks. I only have two children. So all of those networks that I have, even if I tried, (laughs) uh, I wouldn't be able to place my children everywhere. And I think it would literally be a waste if I didn't make those opportunities and those networks available to others. But again, as I said, I'm a development planner part of that is me being a professional as well that my role is to is to make uh, it possible for others and is to grow um, uh, is to make it possible for others because I think it doesn't cost me anything to make it possible uh, for others so that that's 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 really what i I, I, I focus on so and I I focus on education on people.
0: Mm. One of the things is you you do host these um, luncheons lunches for mm. for young women. Mm. Um, what what um, what are the most striking things? How long has that been going for now?
1: Um, it's now eighteen months.
0: So it's quite a new thing. Mm. They're young uh, graduates, mainly young professionals. Mm. Uh, Twenty-one women,
1: to thirty-five age group.
0: Uh, young black women. Yeah and what 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 is the sense what do you get from from them uh, what what is your sense of where we are just by talking to those uh young women
1: i i think that um we've got a generation that is a lot more a, a, a lot more aware than we were uh, at that age aware of aware of themselves mm. But also aware of a bigger world out there, but they're struggling to put their hands on it, and to get there. Uh, precisely because they're women and they're black, so the issue of being women and black is here, it's very alive. So when they, they, so they, they've been to UCT, and so they're now arriving at work at Lireko and all of a sudden they realize that they're actually black and female. And now they don't know how to to deal with that. So so I think there's a a lot of work in coaching them, in supporting them, and in providing guidance on how to navigate those environments as young professionals.
0: And um, you're saying they're, they're confronting being a young black woman in, in the sense that they are looked down upon yes. as...
1: Yes. Because remember, who, who, who is making decisions in corporate South Africa today is people of my age.
0: But mainly white men, I think.
1: That's the point. Who grew up when I grew up during apartheid or at the end of apartheid. So that's the person who's making the decisions, who are socialized in a particular way. So this subconscious bias, as we call it, is very much, is very much alive. It's, it's so alive, it's not believable. It's mm-hmm. very much alive. But I think part of it, which is slightly different from when I was starting work, I understood and I knew that I was black and female, And therefore, that's what was going to be. But them, because they went to UCT, they don't understand that. My daughter is 25. She was born in 1993. So all she knows is Mandela is president in and she and that we vote. She doesn't understand all the nonsense, but actually she's living in it. She didn't expect that. She, she went to Pr- Watercloof Primary School. She went to Watercloof, uh, to Pretoria Girls High. She went to Rhodes University. So she expects that that's how life is going to be. And then she gets to corporate, but it's Lulu and peers that are in corporate that see the black woman in her, which she didn't think was there, but actually is there when she gets there. And I think that's the contradiction that this generation is facing. And I think what corporate South Africa is not appreciating is the time bomb that's in this young professional. Because that's the person who's going to go to EFF. There's this understanding that EFF is the young unemployed in dip in, slots, but actually it's, it's not. not. Remember Ndlo, the Zee, class. Ndlo Zee as a PhD, the spokesperson, is as a PhD from VETS. He's the spokesperson of, of EAF. So I think that's what, is a, as, as this generation of ours, black and white, we, we're not paying attention to. So when I speak to these young women and, and I'm seeing that, I'm, I'm not comfortable because I think our generation is not seeing that. So there's that bit. The second bit is what we talked about earlier on. Because they are where they've grew up in this, they don't expect to cook for anybody. But the young man grew up seeing their mother cooking. So the young man is expecting, because that's what they see at home. But actually, I've got a son and a daughter. But what my son doesn't realize, he sees me cooking and doing all of these things, but what she hasn't, it hasn't clicked is that her sister doesn't. <laughs> and therefore, his wife is not going to. So that's the two contradictions that these young women are facing. And they're very real. So they say, we can't find partners. We can't find boyfriends. Because they're expecting to go like this. But my <laughs> generation hasn't brought up our sons to see that. We're spending a lot of time empowering the young woman. But we aren't teaching the young men, men. we are not adjusting the young men to say, wake up. There's a different woman that's coming up here.
0: So it's kind of exciting and worrying at the same time. It's
1: exciting and worrying, but it's not all doom and gloom. I'm just saying the fact that some of we're starting to work on that, and other people, because I'm not the only one, the other people to start to work on that, at least we're aware of that. Uh, is that the scope, if we could be addressing those issues, there's a future for South Africa.
0: And it is again, I mean, I I harp on this in so many of my interviews, it's a process of a new democracy as well, is it not? It's a transforming society, it's a...
1: We're in transition. I mean, other people say 24 years or whatever is a long time, but actually in the bigger scheme of things, it's nothing. We've Mm. only started. Look at Europe, look at the US, still talking about race relations, how many years later... So I think it's about being aware, not being complacent, but at the same time not beat ourselves, put pressure on ourselves without beating ourselves to death. I think that's the thing. I'm not mm-hmm. saying we should sit here and be complacent and say, we need 50 years to get over this. We've got lessons to learn from the world, which we could shorten that 50 years. But we, we, we just need to make sure that we've got the steps right.
0: And hopefully the space in which to... And,
1: uh, to, to actually engage.
0: Mm. I just want to end um, by asking if you do have any... It's the memorial service for Winnie Mandela Winnie? today. And yeah. I just wanted to ask if you have any reflections on her, about her about her as a, as a role model, particularly for your generation?
1: For me, Winnie is like... She epitomizes a black woman who stands despite everything that's coming at her and remains standing despite. And I take a lot um, from her in terms of that strength. In saying that, I'm not saying that I should accept all that's coming at me because, I mean, there's a lot that's come at her. But it's just the resilience that's that's that she epitomizes and still stood there like straight up and beautiful and radiant, and all of that. so um I, I think for me that's 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 the key thing that i've I've, I've, I've taken out of her. Um, it is that courage is that resilience mm. is to also stand for what you believe in. And it's also appreciate that um only God is perfect we all we're all human, only God is not human, so we of course, we should expect more from our leaders, but we should also um be there to support them to do the right thing appreciating the sacrifices that if you take winnie the sacrifices that she had to take she didn't spend time with her own children she didn't have time for those children those two daughters never had because she was busy fighting for me you know and left her own children and had to suffer the consequences of that, because those those two daughters were, never ma- were not mothered, in inverted commas, in that way. I mean, they had all the love and all of that, but she wasn't there to give them all that attention because she was fighting for the rest of us. And I think sometimes we forget just that simple thing when we look at, at Zinzi and Zenani, her daughters.
0: Thanks so much for your time, Lulu. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And good luck with your... Time and space over the next couple of weeks. I
1: better run, I think. Okay. Okay, good. Thank you very much.
0: Plenty of food for thought there. Um, We, as I said, you know, we covered a lot of ground and start talking about development and then rural development and then the land issue. You see some of the you know, she was alluding to the, the sort of the power that, or the hold that apartheid planning um, still has on on us at so many levels in this country. Um, I hope you, I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, or you can leave a rating or a comment. The podcast is also available on Spotify. Radio Republic Now, and wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your colleagues, tell your friends, tell the world. Until next time, I'm Nicholas Claude. Cheers.